Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. We have another throwback episode for you tonight, and this time we are going to be listening to Elizabeth's story, and she was our very first Story Night speaker in McMinnville, Oregon. Stay tuned to the end of the recording where we will hear from Elizabeth now and have some words of hope and encouragement from her and a prayer for our listeners. So this recording is going to pick up after all the welcome and introductions have finished and we're going to jump in at a beautiful song sung by three sisters one of whom was elizabeth's student and so here is the story night live event from may 2019 enjoy Yeah. 
Okay, so girls, thank you. That was amazing, just like it was in my house. Thank you, Laura. To the person who made the chocolate chip cookies, my plate is right there. If you have any leftovers, okay? <laughs> A huge thank you to my new friend, Jessica Campbell. She's amazing, isn't she? If you're just around Jessica, So you've heard of those type A personalities, right? This is a type A++ personality. And when she told me she used to plan weddings, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Okay. Thank you for bringing this wonderful event to our area, the first of many. Thank you for honoring me and having faith in me with sharing the first story. When I first met Jessica, I wanted to hear, I could tell, I wanted to hear her story. And so I grabbed her, I said, you got a minute? And we went back to my room and we just sat and we chatted. And all of a sudden we were connected on like major life issues. And it was just like, yay, new friend. So this has become a theme in my life. I've decided it's been too long since I've made new friends. You get to be a mom and you get to be a daughter and a wife and all those kinds of things. And you tend not to extend yourself out. And so when I see a fantastic woman, I go, I want to get to know her. And I make the time. And that's the hard part. Make the time to just sit down, share your stories, and I'll bet you anything you'll find a way that you, to connect. Thanks to all of you who chose to spend your Thursday night. Tomorrow's a school day. Some of us need to get up in the morning. We're all very busy though, and I appreciate you being here today. I really appreciated those of you who came running up to me. I'm so excited I got my ticket. I can't wait to hear your story. And I always had two thoughts kind of go through my head. And I mean, literally, this literally happened to me on several occasions from several of you. You know who you are. And I thought, I really want to come hear my story. And the second part was, I wonder what they want to hear. <laughs> Every good conversation begins with a good listener. The community of women is an amazing thing, isn't it? We are so good at meeting each other's needs in a very unremarkable way. We listen because we get it. When my family first arrived in McMinnville in 1995, I had a friend, she and I started walking. And as Laura can attest, when you walk, you talk. She was very open about the struggles in her life. Um, an older boy who was, had moved away. Loneliness in her marriage, a, a daughter, who was not mixing with the right crowd. I was grateful for the opportunity and thankful that she trusted me with that information. And so I let her talk. When I thought she was done, I reciprocated with some stories from my own struggles. And she stopped mid-stride. And she said, I didn't think you had had any adversity in your life. Like you couldn't understand all these things that I'd been telling you. I thought you led a perfect life. Okay, so after we had a laugh about that, okay, raise your hand if you've had a perfect life. Okay, anybody, anybody? Okay. Grew up in a dysfunctional home? Check. Alcoholic father? Check. Parents separated twice and divorced? Check. Became financially independent my second year in college? Check. Brother drove drunk at 21 and became an instant quadriplegic. Check. 
estranged from my father. Check. Unable to conceive. Check. The good news is that God saw me through all these events so that I could learn and grow through them and not just be stuck in the past. Today I can say that I am the sum of my life experiences, but I am not a victim of it. We all have a story. Like most little girls, I did not start out my life with many significant troubles. I looked at my parents and brother with great love, and I knew that they loved me from an early age. I did not anticipate any trials with my family. You just don't think. Your family core will fall apart. Yet when it does, you learn the things you need to learn, and you move on. God bless him, my dad. He didn't know how to be a good husband or a father. He just never got those skills. And I don't know why, if it was because his dad was in the army and gone a lot, or the fact that his dad died when he was 16 and his mom died the month after he got married. You know, I don't know. I don't know the family dynamics and what was taught and what wasn't taught. He struggled with alcoholism only when he realized his marriage to my mom was falling apart. I'll never forget the time, many times I saw my dad drunk, watched him throw up, or seen him pass out. The pinnacle moment, one night, when he came home drunk, he argued loudly with my mom, chased her into the family room. He just wanted to dominate over her and scare her to pieces, which he did quite effectively. I was in junior high or high school at this time. Another night I remember my dad uh, coming home drunk, going on a rant criticizing me on my piano technique and how I can get better. This from a man who never played piano, but who worshiped classical music so deeply, he felt it made him an expert. I realized I could not strike out at this much larger and drunk man as I could get hurt. Plus he had me cornered in my room. So I did the one thing I could do to bring some control to my situation. When she got home, my mom found me curled up tight in a fetal position on the floor in front of my closet. Mom saw the writing on the wall. This marriage was not going to last. She needed to support herself. So she went back to college, finished her grad undergraduate degree. I would come home from sports or school to an empty house. Or I would watch my mom and dad leave in the evenings to go to school and get their degrees or to try and do marriage counseling to save the marriage. I recognized the reality of what my mom did and I fully supported her in it, but I remember making a decision, a very adult decision at a young age. I'm not gonna do that. I wanna be home for my family. I wanna be available to my kids at the end of the day. I'm gonna go get my college done before I have kids. My mom and dad tried two separations, but it was not enough. On the day I moved to college, don't ask me why, they both forced themselves into the same van to move me up to college because that's what parents do, right? It was the most awkward and angry ride I've ever had up I-5. We got to Pacific Lutheran University, unloaded, and mom and dad stood in my doorway of my dorm room and said, we're getting a divorce. And I said, it's about time. My brother and I saw it years ago and we wish they had taken care of it much earlier. But that's how I started my college career. I realized then that there was no way I was going to have any emotional support from mom and dad during those college years. 
I realized I needed to just suck it up and move on. God sent many girlfriends that freshman year on my wing who, along with my boyfriend, buoyed me with the love and support that I would need to get through the year. I remember the drunk phone calls my dad used to make, waking up my roommate, and it'd be one of those loud landline phones with a long cord, and I'd grab it so it's dark and I'm asleep, and dad would say one of two things. You're a horrible, rotten child, and I don't want to ever see you again. Or he'd say, you're the most wonderful, amazing daughter a father could ever have. And I went, uh-huh, for both of these things. Uh-huh, yeah, okay, yeah. Hi, Dad. Yeah. Hi. What I learned from Dad is I can't trust what he says, especially when he's drunk. As a sophomore, I got hauled into the financial aid office. Why aren't you paying your bill? I didn't know I was supposed to pay my bill. I had already gotten loans and financial aid and work study and grants and everything like that. But evidently, Dad was supposed to pay the bill, monthly bill. And he wasn't doing that. So I called Dad. Dad, why aren't you paying the bill? Well, you don't come to see me on the weekends when you come home from college. He's like, oh, well, that's because you're not a pleasant person. So I don't want to be around you. So. I figured out I needed to do something else, and I found a champion in my band director, Roger Gard. When I told him I would not be able to come back next year, he went to bat for me, and he got me extra monies, extra grants. I swear every music scholarship that came up in the department, they just threw my way because they knew I needed it. But that way I stayed at PLU, and I finished my degree. While my relationship with my father will never be perfect, I found the same grace God gave me and I freely now extend it to my dad. I see him for who he is. I try not to understand his ways. I pray for his third wife. And I see the good he has done in his later life and the respect that he holds in his community. My mom went on to get her graduate degree in social work and spend the next 30 years in the field. Regardless of where she was, what she was doing, mom was always there for my brother and I when we needed her. And so through my teenage years, I witnessed the crumbling of my parents' marriage and experienced the strain of my broken relationship with my father, while the relationship with my brother was fantastic. I never could have guessed how our bond would grow stronger with one single moment. I was home from college in the summer of 1983 when the landline at my mom's house rang at 9 p.m., which was odd because back in the day, they didn't call that late, right? You knew something was up. When I answered, I heard the woman tell me my brother had been in a horrible car accident. We needed to get down to the hospital, ASAP. When I asked if he was dying or dead, she simply said, you'd better get down here. That was a defining moment in my life. My 21-year-old brother, Kevin, had just drove drunk into a tree and in an instant became a functional quadriplegic. We simply do not realize that the decisions we make for ourselves can have any lasting impact on the lives of those around us. I was soon to learn how close family can become in times of need. After they fused his C5 and C6 vertebrae to stabilize his neck, he spent the six, next six months in hospital and rehab. Always a man of humor and boldness, my brother, whom I adored, stated that his goal in leaving the hospital was to walk out on his own volition and pick his own nose. 
I am pleased to announce he did both. I remember getting rides home on the weekends from college, and they would drop me off at the hospital where I could see my brother and meet up with my mom. My brother shared a room with another quad who brought into focus the dichotomous decision that every quad must make. Am I going to make the most of this situation, or am I going to be bitter and resentful without hope for the rest of my life? Thankfully, my brother chose the former. His attitude and expectation were what allowed him to grow old enough to see his kids graduate from high school and college. I learned that the human will is a very strong asset. I was transferring him into an orange VW bug that I had borrowed from a friend at college one summer. And in those days, we used to do sliding board transfers. I see some nodding heads. Must be some CNAs in here. And somehow, I lost my grip. And my brother ended up on the ground. I think in front of Tower Records. <laughs> and we laughed, he laughed, and we laughed. And to, the, to his last days, we used to just bust up over all the accidents that had happened over the years. What most people don't understand about quadriplegics is the incredible intimate and personal care they require from family members. I never thought in my wildest dreams that I'd be changing an external catheter on my own brother or I'd be doing st uh, digital stimulation to help him eliminate. But you do it because you love him, and you do anything for him. He needed help washing, eating, drinking, dressing, undressing, writing, brushing his teeth, all those things we take for granted every day. I'm especially reminded of my mobility at night when I lay down, and you make all those micro-adjustments just to get into that right position, and I think of my brother, because it used to take forever to get all those micro-adjustments just right. I took care of him that first summer he was home and what an education that was. You do not have any time to yourself when you are taking care of a quad. Even when he went down for a nap and I thought I was going to have a chance to put my feet up, inevitably he would call me for another adjustment. It may seem that this story is more about my brother and his trials and successes as opposed to mine. We often see movies based on inspirational people who have had dramatic lives and triumphs over adversity. Rarely do we see and hear the stories of those who love and care for them during the worst of times. I was not in the accident. I did not have any injuries. I did not lose my mobility. And yet this moment impacted my life in so many ways. Kevin was an amazing man before his accident in all his imperfections. But his greatest moments came after. He went on to get his associate's degree in computer programming, marry his note taker, have two wonderful and successful kids, work at Nike headquarters, drive his own specialized van, get a divorce, live on his own, lose the house, and declare bankruptcy. All the things that we do in America as adults. Throughout it all, he had aides who would come in the morning to get him ready and again at night to put him to bed. He was an amazing man. In the blink of an eye, everything can change. Make the most with those who mean the most. At 13, that's my honey, I attended a youth retreat at the beach and recommitted my life to Christ. And as a baby Christian does, right, you bring everything. You bring everything to Christ, especially the really big ones, like who am I going to marry, right? And so I prayed that prayer. And a little while after that, I was in band, and I was carrying a stack of papers, and I was ready to cross over the threshold to the music office 
I just put them right there on the desk when something stopped me and urged me to turn around. And so I did. And just like here, I, I look out and I see a bunch of people, junior high band room, clanking instruments, erasers being thrown, pencils being you know, thrown up to the tiles on the roof. But out of all this chaos, I hear this laughter. And I look and I find the laughter's source. And I see a young man that I've never considered before. I've never even seen before, it seemed like. He was nice looking. He loved music and sports. He got good grades, didn't hang out with a bad crowd. And he had a great sense of humor, which at this time in my life, I really needed. <gasps> That's the one. Okay, Lord, give it up to you, please. <laughs> and I literally said these words, don't, don't let me blow it. I give it up. I just, I give it all to you. Senior year, um, or rather the next period, social studies with Mr. Sweet. Janine Milford, my best friend, is sitting next to me, and she slips me a note. Guess who I got a crush on? She's never had a crush in her life, and now she picks a time. And I'm like, oh, please don't be Kevin Walsh. Who? She goes, Kevin Walsh. I'm like, oh. <laughs> are you kidding me? Is this a test? <laughs> yeah, he seems nice. So for the next few months, I had to hear all these stories about what she did with uh, my future husband. <laughs> it was torture. <laughs> when we were seniors in high school, I asked him out to the Sadie Hawkins dance and, and everything else is history. I truly married a man whom I can share several common interests, who is brilliant and funny, and whom I highly respect. In short, I married my best friend. Take note, young women. Be sure that you like your future husbands before falling in love with them, because friendship lasts more than infatuation. We have had some amazing times together, times of want, times of plenty. I remember leaving Oregon to go to grad school with 300 bucks in our pocket and telling my mom we might be back at Christmas for good because we couldn't find work. But we ended up staying eight years gainfully employed. I remember being in that room for the jazz majors and they made the announcement, there's an opening for a jazz arranging teaching fellow. Well, my composer husband was over in the other room getting the composition orientation. And so I raised my hand over in the jazz orientation. I said, I got the guy. And that's what helped get us through those first couple of years in grad school. No such thing as coincidence. We were 30 when I first went off birth control to try and start a family. And for three years, we went through several um, procedures to help things along, but nothing took. Since Kevin and all his siblings were adopted, that was a no-brainer for us. So, for some, infertility is a real struggle. But for Kevin and I, it was simply a matter of moving on to the next solution. And in the end, as much as I wanted to conceive in the usual way and experience pregnancy, I still got to be a mom. And that was the ultimate thing I wanted most of all. My little boy. Once we realized that we would not be able to conceive on our own and were decided on adopting, we chose to go through the state because it didn't cost anything. And so after the mountains of paperwork and the 27 hours of classes about the horrible abuses that you, you don't even have any idea happen, you must learn about before you become a foster parent. It kept us busy for many months. And we learned that the healthy babies coming through the state system were 
few and far between, and highly competitive. But my mantra was this. I think the God of the universe can probably figure out a way to cut through some red tape and make it happen. And so one day I had a friend call, and he asked about the adoption. How are things going? And I got him up to speed. And he asked me a question that just changed my life, rocked my world. He said, what would you say if I told you there is someone who wants to pay the $21,000 it takes to adopt through a private agency instead of going through the state? I said, you've got to be kidding. Who does that? That's the only way that we got our beautiful and Hispanic and very talkative boy, Gabriel. Absolutely amazing. I want to figure out a way to pay back that gift someday. One Sunday morning, four and a half years later, we were getting ready for church when we got a phone call from our caseworker at Boys and Girls Aid Society. Normally she would call and she would say, okay, here's the situation. This 14-year-old girl is a victim of incest. Can you see yourself having an, an open adoption with this person? Can I show her your book? And we would say, oh yeah, that's fine. Uh, this person is incarcerated in Woodburn at the Women's Correction Facility. Um, she did drugs and alcohol before she went in. She's now just smoking her way to death inside. Can you see having an open adoption with that person? I was like, yeah. I mean, some of these were really hard, but you said yes to all of them. But still, nobody was taking us up. Sunday morning comes, and we get a phone call from our caseworker that says, how fast can you get down to Salem Hospital? And I'm like, whoa, wait a second, what's going on? You need to get down here as fast as possible. Well, what happened to the whole, can I show your book to this family, you know, protocol that we've been following? She said, trust me, get down here. This is your baby. Okay. So the story goes that our daughter's birth mom, Megan, didn't know that she was uh, pregnant. And so her mom convinced her to get a pregnancy test, and she was farther along than anyone believed. And so she called Boys and Girls Aid Society of Oregon, and she um, made an appointment. She called on Friday, made an appointment for Monday, but she never made the appointment because she gave birth on Saturday. We showed up and fell in love with the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, funny little girl, Sophia. As it turns out, as Megan had been looking at our family books, and on the front of our family book, there was me, Kevin, and Gabriel, and we're all kind of like suited up because music is what we do. And so Kevin's in his tux, and he's got his French horn, and I've got a nice outfit on with my flute, and Gabriel's got a nice little, you know, little man, you know, tie and stuff, and he's got his little viola because he was taking lessons at that time. So it was a very formal picture, and um, our caseworker had already said, you know, you might want to change that front picture. It's kind of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> go do a dog pile on the couch or out in the grass or something. Make it casual. But, I mean, for, for us, it's like, well, this is our life. <laughs> well, Megan, she goes, she's looking at this, and she's going, hey, Dad, come on over. And her dad's a middle school band director down in Salem. She goes, I, th I think this family's a, a, a group of musicians. <laughs> the grandfather, Jamie, walks over, and looking over his daughter's shoulder, says, I've worked with her as an accompanist. I've been in their home. I've worked with him at Western Oregon. This is the family you want. No such thing as coincidence. To this day, we meet with Grandma Rita every month or so over breakfast to celebrate this wonderful life we have been entrusted with. 
and I am so grateful to have her and her family in our lives. There's no doubt in my mind that God orchestrated this whole affair. Throughout my journey, the good, the bad, and the ugly, there was always music. Whether it was the piano, flute, or bass, I could always turn to an instrument to bang out frustrations or cry my heart out to or rejoice with. Instruments are always non-judgmental. They always listen. It's the best kind of therapy. The piece I performed for you tonight, of course, is Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune, one that I learned in junior high, but I've carried in my back pocket for decades, enjoying the process of improving it over the time. There's a really cool place where musicians can go that is not of this world. It's that place where the spirit, physical realm meets the spiritual. And if you are fortunate enough, you can cross over into a space that, again, is non-judgmental, totally peaceful, and allows you complete freedom to be as creative as you want, as if there are no wrong answers. This is such a beautiful and unique place, and one that I miss greatly and strive to visit every time I play an instrument. It is first where I first met the spirit of Jesus Christ. You see, I grew up in a liturgical church where they tell you to when to stand, when to kneel, what, what to say, and when to say it. And I just never met him through that. Isn't it interesting that God meets us wherever we are? I started piano lessons at seven or eight as a result of learning uh, Heart and Soul and Chopsticks. I heard some boys play it, and I just grabbed the last one. I sat him on the bench, and I said, show me how to play that. And he goes, oh, okay. And he showed me. And from that point on, I begged my mom for lessons. And uh, my path was set from that point on. I recently was watching Inside Out with my daughter. And do you remember the point where um, sad, sadness and joy go down to the long-term memory banks? And they meet the two memory miners who have the big suction hose. And so they clear out all the balls of memories that are gray. They're fading, right? And so they come across a bank and they go, four years of piano lessons? What are we supposed to do with this? And then they look at it and she goes, Ah, eh, keep chopsticks and heart and soul, get rid of the rest. <laughs> For many, that defines their piano career, you know. <laughs> they can play those two pieces. I went on to try the viola, learned the flute in fifth grade, picked up the guitar, all these various instruments that you see up here and more. That is my joy. I love to learn instruments. It's as if those who have gone before me are whispering in my ear, moving my hands to show me how easy it can be, much in the way uh, in the movie, Always, if anybody's seen that, where Richard Dreyfuss' character is guiding Holly Hunter's hand to land the plane safely in the lake. We used to do Civil War reenacting, and I remember my husband got very interested in this, and I thought, okay, I'm going to miss my husband for several weekends. I'd better join him. And I thought I'd follow him along as a um, soldier, because there were some female soldiers in Civil War. But then as soon as I found out that they had a need for musicians, I said, okay, yeah, I can do this. So we did that for nine years. We all have a story. Eight years ago, I walked into McMinnville Christian Academy to sign uh, little Sophia up for preschool. As I walked into the office at school, I was met by a familiar face. Chris Rubedo gaped. I mean, I walked in and she just looked like she'd seen a ghost. And she goes, and she's standing next to the principal at that point. She goes, uh, we were just talking about you. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about me for? And she goes, uh, she wants to start a music program. I went, oh, okay. 
I went in there to sign up my daughter for like twice a week preschool, and I walked out with a job and two kids enrolled full time. <laughs> no such thing as coincidences. I have amazing stories of donations at that school. You got to understand, McMinnville Christian Academy. We run a tight ship. We don't have access. Okay. And so when donations come in, in the magnitude that I've seen specific to the music program, it's amazing. And it's allowed us to build a digital keyboard lab and to get choir risers and pianos and things. I mean, grand piano. It's just, it's amazing. So God is moving. When I was in graduate school, my mom always made sure I had a subscription to Reader's Digest because she knew that while I wasn't a big reader, I did enjoy those. One of those stories was about a mom and daughter enjoying a coffee moment. The daughter was recently engaged and was gushing to her mom about how perfect everything was going to be once she married her soulmate. The mother was quiet for a spell and then very quietly sat over the rim of her coffee cup. Keep your girlfriends close. The daughter exclaimed that her future husband was all that she was going to need. That while she would certainly keep in touch with her friends, she was looking forward to sharing everything with her husband and he with her. The mother once again said, keep your girlfriends close. Of all the things my mom gave me, she likely had no idea how, what an impactful nugget of truth would come from such a simple subscription. Another time I was directing a choir here in town and we had a season where some of our members had severe illnesses such that it required hospital visits. And as I did that, I thought, who would I want at my deathbed or my hospital bed? Who would I want to come encourage me? I instantly came up with five girlfriends. And that shocked me because this was a time of my life when I didn't make time for my girlfriends necessarily. And I thought, why am I not doing that? If these are so important to me, I want them at my hospital bed. I need to invest. I need to nurture those friendships. I came up with all kinds of excuses. And to be honest, I, it still took me several years to get the hang of connecting with my close friends and inviting them out for breakfast, a walk, or a cup of coffee. I'm too busy being the most often used excuse not to. Some of those meetings have become monthly traditions. Others have faded away as they have. Now when I see a woman who I want to get to know better, I make the effort to reach out, schedule a time where we can sit down and listen to each other as women can. As a result, my life has been enriched beyond my imagination. I walk away from each of those events a better person with a greater love for those around me because they are so amazing. Everyone has a story. And I can't help but encourage you to do the same. We were not created to live in isolation, but in community. These days, I am being more gentle to my body, my mind, and my spirit, as well as to those around me. I am more aware of those things and people that bring me the greatest joy, and I'm investing in them. It is my desire to joyfully raise our children and successfully launch them into the world so I can spend more time with my boyfriend and husband, Kevin Walzig, and maybe become a volunteer pet therapist. <laughs> Before I sign off, I leave with you these words I pulled from Sally Clarkson. Thank you, Vanessa Foster. 
and the power of positivity sites that I follow. Don't judge your, yourself by your past. You don't live there anymore. Taking care of yourself is an essential part of taking care of others. The healthier the tree, the better the fruit it can offer. Who you are, who you were, and who you will become are three different people. Again, I thank Jessica Campbell for having faith in me to help launch Story Night here at Calvary. I thank Pastor Brian and his staff for helping with all the media and setup. And I encourage all of you in the days to come to take some time to just pretend that Jessica has asked you to speak at the next story night and throw down some words and see what comes out. You might be surprised, you might be challenged, but in that challenge always there is growth. Plus, you never know, never know when she actually will ask you, so you might as well be ready. I am honored to have been asked to give the inaugural story. And I look forward to hearing all of your stories in the years to come. And remember that the best part of your story is that the next page is blank and you get to write it. We all have a story. Thank you. Well, ladies, I hope you enjoyed listening to that story. And as promised, I have our speaker, Elizabeth, also known as Eli, here with me. So welcome back, Eli. Thank you, Jessica. <laughs> Always good to be with you. Love it. Um, and I so appreciate not only that you did the very first story night in McMinnville, uh, but that you were a guest on episode two. And now here you are again with us. So as we're closing up for tonight, I was just reflecting back on your story and all of the different chapters that you had and noticing how so many of them required endurance. And I think we often think of that word in the physical sense, but most of us have gone through or are currently going through some kind of struggle that requires mental endurance, emotional endurance, spiritual endurance. So I was hoping you might speak to our listeners a little bit about that concept of endurance, because I know some of the things you went through were struggles that lasted a long time. They weren't really tough struggles for two weeks, and then they were all better. They, they, they dragged on. Um, so what was it that kind of kept you going, and what words of hope and encouragement might you give to women who are in similar struggles that are just lasting a long time? You know, I never really thought about that until you said it, Jessica, but you're right. There was a lot of intense things that lasted. You didn't know how long they were going to last. And then they ended up maybe lasting longer than you thought they were going to last. And I would just say the things that got me through those days were just to keep the faith. And so for those adoptive families waiting, it'll come. Your day will come. You may get a lot of no's to begin with, like I did uh, when we would offer our family book uh, to a variety of clients and then we would not get chosen. And it was like, okay, well, we'll wait for the next one. So, um, and we ended up with a beautiful baby boy, but that process took, you know, we took 12 years to get our, our education and then we took three years to try and get pregnant. And then we took another year or two to 
do infertility, and then it was another four years for the adoption process. I didn't think of it as being an endurance race at the time, uh, but now in hindsight, it certainly was. But we just kept the faith. We knew that there was a baby out there for us. And so I would just say, keep the faith. In fact, I just learned something new about you. You run marathons? Oh, no, this was, <laughs> I used to, I used to. I hated running with a passion, but I couldn't afford a gym when we first moved here. And I thought, you know, anytime you use the word hate, which is a very strong word, it usually means there's a lack of understanding. And so I wanted to understand running better. And so I set my sights on the 1997 uh, Portland Marathon. And I trained with a gal who was probably half my size, my height. And um, we had a great time doing it. And what we found was it's the slow and steady. And anytime we stopped, it was harder to get up, pick up and go again. If you just kept on going, it was much better. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we could use that analogy to encourage those who are going through it. If you're like, I don't know if I can stand another day of this, you can. And, and it, it, your day will come. Yeah. Did you find that there were any tools that you learned in the physical endurance of running an actual marathon that ended up serving you in the emotional, mental, spiritual endurance of your life chapters? Well, you know, we've all heard that phrase, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? But I think for so many of us, Um, we don't, maybe we don't recognize it's a marathon, um, or maybe we do. And we say, forget it. I'm just going to treat it like a sprint anyway. And so we work, 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 work as if we're a sprinter inside of a marathon format. And it absolutely exhausts you. It totally tears you apart, tears you down. You may come to the point where you absolutely can't go another step. And so I think acknowledging that this is in fact a, a marathon of a of a process, whether it's adoption or, you know, uh, caregiving and to do what, um, riders do, right. Horseback riders. Um, my daughter's in horseback riding lessons right now. And I'm even taking a couple of them and you talk about the seat and you've got to have a good seat. And the good seat is kind of right in the middle. You're not too far back. You're not too far forward. You're just right in the middle. And that way you have the best balance on your horse. And we have to find that in these difficult times. Where's the balance? Where, how much time do I need to take for myself? How much time do I need to care for this person? Or how much more time do I need to dedicate to the adoption paperwork or whatever? And we have to make, find that balance for everybody. I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit because before we started recording, you sang something to me that was truly phenomenal and brought back so many memories. And I think so many listeners will know exactly what you're talking about and probably use that in their, in whatever marathon they are running themselves. Mm. <laughs> so, I, know, I know the part you're talking about. <laughs> yes. Was there, was there a certain cartoon that came to mind to help you keep going? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, for those of you who are listening and um, you've listened to my story, so you know, I'm a musician. And so, I find music everywhere in life. And um, when I was training for the marathon, I found 
if I could hit a certain rhythm, so a beat per minute with my feet, and I could find a certain uh, breathing rhythm for myself, I could go all day. But if I was outside of that parameter, I would get too tired or whatever. I'd be out of balance. And so the song that Jessica is referring to is from um, the stop motion picture um, called Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And it's where the winter warlock kind of wakes up. He becomes a nice person again. And he starts walking across the room. And he sings that song, take one foot in front of the other. And so that was my song for the marathon because it was the perfect beat per minute for me to maintain. And so I just kept that song going through my head. And she's, she wants me to sing it, but I'm not sure I'm totally comfortable <laughs> with being an instrumentalist and not necessarily a vocalist. Uh, so... Oh, but you can sing it and I can cut it out if you don't like it. <laughs> okay, you have to sing it with me then, okay? Oh, but I'm tone deaf. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> Great. I'll do the beat. <laughs> one, two, three. Take one foot in front of the other. And soon you'll be walking across the floor. Put one foot in front of the other. And soon you'll be walking out the door. Over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so whatever struggle you are in the middle of right now, whatever, whatever, or, you know, painful situation you've got, I hope you could just smile and you're going to start singing that in your head now, whether you're running an actual literal marathon or or you have this metaphorical marathon that you are in the middle of. And the analogy just goes on and on. I mean, you can take that marathon analogy and apply it to just about anything in life. The marathon, the bigger marathon for me truly was the caregiving part. And even though I didn't do as much of the caregiving as my mom did, just to be that observer and to see the event, the phone call that we got, and then not knowing how long it's gonna take, and then seeing as time goes by, how long and how deep, and how horrible it can be at times. Um, that truly was a marathon. And there were times my mom, being the primary caregiver, had to really just step back and go, okay, I need a day to myself. I can't do it all. I need your help, Elizabeth. Can you come up? You know, and we enlisted friends and things sometimes. And so it, 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 it's wise to, you know, check yourself from time to time and to see if you have what it takes to be able to put that next foot in front of you. And if you don't, you probably need to reevaluate your situation and find some time and enlist help and maybe look at a new uh, procedure in order to find more time for yourself. And especially for those who are spouses or parents of children, um, you know, you feel obligated, of course, uh, because of the commitment you've made to that person. And um, that doesn't lessen the fact that you need to take care of yourself. Absolutely. You know, we could have an in, uh, a full hour podcast episode just devoted to these these things. But I know your story touched a lot of women, and I it really kickstarted the ministry here in McMinnville. So we are just very grateful to you for that, and. Yep. As we sign off, I was hoping you might just pray for our listeners for whatever marathon they may be running in their life. Mm, certainly. Thank you. Um, Father, thank you for this time together um, as women. 
um, all of our struggles and the way that they manifest themselves in our lives and the way that we deal with them. And it, it can be very different from what our men uh, will do to, to deal with the same problem. And we are perfectly designed by you to be this way. And I just pray that you would speak into each woman's heart that is listening to this and gently show them what they need to do next, that next foot in front of the other that they can do to better take care of their loved one, to prepare for adoption, uh, to take care of themselves as they care give. Um, we just really lift those women up who are struggling and who feel like they're in the middle of a marathon, crumpled up on the ground, and they need to be able to stand again and then be able to put that foot forward. Send people who will speak wise words into their lives to lift them up, to empower them, and to show them that you love them and you are there with them if they will just acknowledge you and welcome you into their circumstances and just know how much they will be set free uh, the more that they depend on you, especially in these times of trouble. We love you, Father. And I pray a special blessing upon Jessica and the joy that she brings to so many. And I thank you for the opportunity that she gave me. And I just ask you to bless her life as well. Father, we thank you and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for that. Yes, you're welcome. I just adore you. <laughs> Likewise. <it's me. laughs> well, uh, ladies, thank you so much for listening. I've, if you did not get to attend Elizabeth's story night last year, uh, I hope that you were just thoroughly blessed and encouraged by her story, by her words, and that you can go forth with a little encouragement for whatever marathon you are in the middle of. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast. A ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.